This is a podcast about failure. With me, Lola Berry, author, nutritionist, and yoga teacher. Join me as we get to know these guests and learn about how their failures have ultimately shaped their dreams. Welcome to Fearlessly Failing with Lola Berry. Hello, it's Lowell's here. This guest is Craig Harper. So he's a bit of a, not jack of all trades, but he does a lot of awesome things. So he's written books, does motivational speaking, PT, was a conditioning coach for AFL teams. He's currently studying his PhD in neuroscience. He's super fascinated by human behaviour. We have a really honest and raw talk about failure, about why motivation doesn't stick and uncover why diets are so hard to stick to, which I was like, oh my goodness, I am totally this person. And we also talk about how to kind of get over that hump, like what actually makes us succeed. And my favourite bit is we talk about how to get out of your own way. So I hope you enjoy this very honest, Harps loves to swear a bit, so this super raw and honest chat with Harps. Hello, we were just having a little giggle because I'm nervous. Not necessarily about interviewing, but the incredible Craig Harper has just interviewed me on the Pod. The U Pod, the U Project podcast. Correct. He just looked at me put, and pointed put, behind put, his head. Put your teeth back in. Start again. <laughs> he just literally looked at me, pointed behind his head, which is the poster. So I shouldn't have got that wrong. But I was just saying it's nerve wracking to go from being interviewed to then being the interviewer. And we have already discovered that I'm a little bit OCD and like to research for three million hours mm, on mm, each person. So. Mm. I'm pumped to unpack all I'm ready. that is I'm ready. Craig Harper. So first of all, as soon as I jump on your website, it literally says Craig Harper is keeping shit real. I try to. I'm not, yeah, I try to. I, I try to uncomplicate stuff a little bit. I think sometimes in the personal development space it can get a bit airy-fairy and fluffy and a little bit too um, unnecessarily technical and academic and complicated. I think you need a bit of that, but I think you also need to be able to relate to people in a way which connects and resonates and sometimes the super-duper sciencey, deep, researchy stuff is a little bit, albeit um, perhaps accurate, not necessarily relatable. Yeah, so hence why you keep shit real. Trying to keep shit real so people stay connected. Can I ask a quick fanny question for my, this is for my dad actually. What's your dad's name? My dad is Noel Smith. No, but an avid uh, Essendon footy supporter, mm. and he was like, "So tell me, who, tell me who you're interviewing tomorrow." And I mm. started to give him the rundown of you, and I said, "I think he was an AFL conditioning coach for a while." And my dad's ears pricked up. He mm. got, looked me straight in the eye, and he's like, "Oh yeah, mm. I mm. think I've heard about this, Craig Harper." Mm. Can you tell us what on earth is an AFL conditioning coach so, and what your role was? Yeah, so I just worked at um, St Kilda and I've worked with a bunch of different teams. So I worked at St Kilda as a strength coach, so strength and conditioning. Awesome. So it's a bit of a team. Yeah. And, um, but I was – well, I was that head of all the strength stuff for three years. Um, so trying to obviously build functional strength, trying to build – muscular endurance, aerobic endurance, keep them injury-free when they are injured, rehab them, all the stuff about getting the body right to execute the skill that they have so that, you know, you might have the the, like somebody who's got the most talent, the most potential, the best skill, um, but if they don't have the body that will allow them to run for four quarters of 30 minutes, give or take, as well as hit and be hit and tackle and be tackled and to be able to perform under pressure and in the middle of what would for most of us be exhaustion, then I they can't it. perform optimally. Yeah. So that's fun. So I imagine it would have been pretty – like I know from us speaking that your whole background – your background is so much stuff. Mm. It's because I'm old as fuck, right? No. Fuck, I'm old as fuck. No, it's not that. I, I feel like like I've got a massive list here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 
being a trainer and being really into the way the human body moves and whatnot, but I imagine mm. working with and it feels like you've got a you lean or you have leaned into training professional athletes. Mm. And I'm guessing this is me taking a stab here, not a stab stab, but like is the I think this is because of the more mindset stuff as well. Yeah, a little bit. I mean I've worked with a bunch of elite athletes, your friend and mine, Steph Prem being yes. one of them. Uh, Jackie Cooper, who was an aerial ski jumper, a whole bunch of um, different Olympians, uh, Nissan Motorsport, as we said, St Kilda Football Club, Melbourne Vixens, Motorsport. Melbourne Phoenix. How do you train motorsport people? They're athletes, yeah. They've got to really? be incredibly fit, yeah. Lean or more strong? Uh, no, more about aerobic endurance and an ability to, you know, they, you think about the, I had a guy called David Reynolds, Davey Reynolds, who drives for, oh, fuck. I can't remember the name of He's going to kill me. Anyway, he's <laughs> awesome. Oh, shit. Anyway, <laughs> but he's an amazing dude. And he was talking to me about the the temperature in the car can get up to 65 degrees Celsius. That's like a sauna. Yeah, it's hotter than a sauna sometimes. Yeah. Um, and they wear five layers and, you know, all the fire-resistant stuff. And so, yeah, car drivers, they're not a typical athlete in the sense that we think about um, sportsmen and women, but, you know, they need to be in very, very good shape physically. So, yeah, most most uh, professional uh, race car drivers have uh, a pretty serious conditioning program. Oh, yeah, it's I cool. I love this. It's cool. It's fun. Yeah, that yeah. sounds so fun. Okay, so back to you. All right. Craig Harper is keeping shit real. Presenter, writer. Now, I thought you'd written four books, but it's more like eight. Yeah, about that. Yep. And, and some stuff like Pull Your Finger Out, yep. Stop Fucking Around. Yeah. Great names. Thank you. Uh, educator, <laughs> podcaster. Highbrow, highbrow stuff. <laughs> we were, well, we were just talking about my Stop Being a Fat Bitch title. Yeah, that went this, well. So. Yeah. yeah, that went well. <laughs> I knew it was a safe space to talk about. So, also, radio host, The Science of Sport. Yep. Now, I've listened to enough of your podcasts mm. to know that you have a wonderful radio voice. Can you just give me like a little line in your radio? Yeah, sure. Welcome okay. back to Melbourne's home of sport, 1116, all sport, all day. Coming up in the next hour, we're chatting with Lola Berry, mm, that uh, controversial chick in the media. Coming at you live <laughs> have <in> Podcast you, <laughs> FM. Have you had media training? No. So you're intonation. All on all the that. job. All on the wow. job. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for that, by the way. But also, I, but honestly, I never, ever spoke like that on radio. I always just talk. If I'm talking to somebody in the street or I'm doing a podcast like we are now or I'm on radio or I'm doing telly or I'm doing a, a keynote, it's the same. Totally. So, how fucking exhausting would it be to have a special radio voice? Oh, but many people do, my friend. <laughs> and TV and, right. and presenting. Mm. And even I teach yoga. Sometimes mm. the yoga teacher's voice can be different mm. to their real, mm. to their real voice. Well, I guess you don't want a yoga teacher going. All right, everybody, it's Karen. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you just speak the word of the name Karen <laughs> of all the names. I don't know. <laughs> so Australiana. Yeah. G'day. All right, it's Margaret. <laughs> Downward dog, you fuckers. That's not working, is it? Do you know some, t- some there are some famed yoga teachers for swearing? Really? And they're like, get the fuck into that part. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And there's a militant side to yoga you don't see in some, in some what is, what is lineages. That mean? What does that mean? So uh, I teach and practice vinyasa, but mm. the, the kind of like mother and father of vinyasa are Iyengar and Ashtanga. Now, mm. if you're out of line back in the day in Iyengar yoga, you'd mm. be hit with a stick. Wow. And a lot of yoga comes from old school contortionists right. in England when they were like, instead yeah. of the court jester, you get a contortionist in. Yeah. A lot of it comes did, from that kind of stuff. Did you hear about the contortionist that died in his own arms? Oh, my God. Oh, come on. No, really? <laughs> Fuck off. You can have that. You can use that. You can use that. Oh, my God. That's this free. This is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. So, but- <laughs> <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> back, back to you and TV. Yes. We have been on the same TV show. Yes. Uh, the uh, Channel 10 morning show with Dave and Kim. Yes, that's correct. I love that show. Mm. Now, you were the life renovator. Yes, I was the kind of, yeah, for want of a better help people get their shit together person. Awesome. Mm. So I was the health girl. So mm. we probably might have crossed paths in a green room or. Did you ever cross paths with a girl called Ariane who no. was a chef on there, a cook, a chef? No. Yeah. So I really got put on the chef days generally because I'd make something. Right. So they'd kind of sub me out 
Right. Because I'd do a two-pronged yeah. approach of yeah, nutrition yeah, yeah. and let's make a healthy avocado choc mousse. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> uh, the thing that I'm really excited to delve into with you, you are an exercise scientist but your passion and what you're mm. studying, your PhD in mm. now is neuroscience, yeah. am I correct? Yeah. And what did you have on the desk here, the psychology of? So the neuroscientific model of the motivational process. So my PhD is, well, can I just go back a tiny bit? Absolutely. So, so like what? As you said, so I come from an exercise science background, which essentially is anatomy, physiology, biomechanics, movement, energy systems, physiological overload, adaptation, how do we get stronger, run faster, jump higher, uh, change our body composition, lower blood pressure, reduce pain or uh, reduce adaptive response, uh, increase adaptive response, all that kind of stuff. But you get to a point where you go, hmm, so I can tell this person what to do and why to do it and how to do it and I can teach them how to use all of these things and give them understanding and insight about all of these scientific principles and then Lola can come in and tell them what to eat and why and how and when and what's what it's doing and what it's not doing. But then there's another element and that is the behaviour that neither you or I can mm. control and the behaviour is a byproduct of the mind because we don't accidentally eat cake and we don't accidentally not go to the gym and we don't accidentally have six beers. So for me I got really um, fascinated with why people do stuff and don't do stuff and I thought even by the time I was um, – so I started working in gyms when I was 18. I started PTing. So I was gym instructing at 18. I started doing personal training at 23 uh, and I opened Australia's first personal training centre in 1990 when you were fucking two or something annoying. <laughs> and, you know, for me it was – I just got to the point where I realised I know a fair bit about bodies and how that all works but I need to understand humans better, the, the person who mm. lives in the body and then – I started to get better results because I started to be more interested in um, thinking and behaving and choosing decision-making, reacting, self-talk, subjective reality, um, perception, awareness, self-efficacy. You know, how come I can get two people to do the same thing and one whinges and complains and one does it happily or I subject two people to the same stimulus. One says it's it's painful, one says it's not. And, mm. you know, there's just that there's a huge amount of variability around the human experience and so it's learning to to understand not just the physiology but the psychology and emotion and sociology of creating change. And mm. everyone that goes to a gym, everyone that listens to your podcast everyone that sees a, um, I know and you go and see Tezza, um, everyone that sees a counsellor or a psychologist or a doctor or a, a nutritionist, they do that partly because they want to change. Like nobody comes to you because they don't want to change their diet mm. or they don't want to change their results. Mm. And so everyone joins a gym for that reason. And I remember thinking a lot of people, firstly, and this is, you know, I, I don't have the exact numbers on this, but my perception is probably for every 100 people that join, maybe 10 get the results they wanted. That's a low percentage. Maybe the results they wanted and maybe 2 or 3% keep them. Oh, wow. Right? Now, this is just, this is based on 35 years of owning, yeah. owning and working in gyms. So I don't have hard science. But what we know is, that most people who join a gym, and this is not about gyms or bodies, this is about human behaviour and thinking and psychology, most people who join gyms, for example, don't go. Mm. Most, more than half. They either never go at all after a period of time, even though they're still members, or they rarely go. So the figure that gets bandied about a bit is that the average active gym membership in Australia is about 15 to 20%, which means that wow. about 80 to 85% of current members rarely go or don't go at all. Wow. So that tells us that people make decisions all the time that they don't follow through on. Now, you think about when someone starts, they have an idea, an intention, a plan, mm -hmm. and they have a need because that's why they're there and they have a desire probably, then you think, all right, so now you've got all of that plus you've got a program, plus you've got a bit of support, plus you've got access to resources and facilities and now we're four weeks down the track and you don't come anymore, mm. right? And so the challenge for me was always how do I get people to get their head where it needs to be to get their body where they want it? 
I love this so much. I had this incredible trainer in Sydney. Shout out to Dan Adair if you ever listen. He's now in LA though so I don't get to. Selfish Dan, come back. (laughs) And he used to say to me, and and out of all my body results, Mm. whenever I was training with Dan, I got the best results. And he used to say to me, Lola, out of everyone I train, he said, I train your mind, not your body. Mm. And I was like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? He's like, well, yeah. I, 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 he goes, I don't train your body. I tra- mm. He goes, you actually do all that. Mm. You you do all the extra work outside of the two times you see me a week. Correct. He's yeah. like, but I, when I'm here, right. when you're here, I'm training your mind, mm. which is probably why I do resonate so well with having a therapist and working on the mind. So my question for you is, and you've just touched on this now, and I'm so excited mm. to kind of like unpack this. Why do people only stick to something for like that 10-day, mm. two-week period, maybe three weeks if they're lucky and mm. then drop the ball? Mm. Do, is it that they feel shame? Is it that they feel guilt? And then they drop like what it, What? and why do people not have follow-through? I'm that person mm. that will be like, I start a detox tomorrow, I'm going to go to yoga every day. Mm. Ten days in I'm like, mm. stuff that, I mm. want to eat the chocolate, I'm going to skip yoga tomorrow mm. and I'm much better at picking myself up and, moving forward because I'm comfortable failing now and I'm more mindful. Yes, yes. And so I get back in there quicker but it used to go much longer where I was in that percentage. Yeah. So what is it that, what is that thing that why do we self-sabotage? Okay. So why do we self-sabotage and why do we not get the job done and keep it done? Yeah. They're the good questions. All right, so let me ask you, so I'll ask you a couple of questions and the answer will come out. Generally speaking, do we like comfort or discomfort? Generally speaking, people like comfort. Right. And where does change happen? When we're comfortable or uncomfortable? Uncomfortable. There's part of the answer. <laughs> yeah. See, the, the problem is or the challenge is that on the the dichotomy is that on the one hand we say, I want to learn, grow, evolve, I want to be leaner, I want to be stronger, I want to be healthier, I want more uh, mental resilience, I want to develop skill in this space, build a brand, build a business, do a PhD, write a book, whatever, all these things that take work, discipline and discomfort. Mm. especially when you're immersing yourself in there initially. So the thing that people want, transformation, comes as a byproduct of the thing they don't want, pain. Oh, wow. Discomfort. Yeah. Unfamiliarity. This is where growth happens. And we don't need to change our life. We think we need to change our life. We need to change ourselves. Mm. Because when we change ourselves, our life is different because where you live is in your head and your heart. You don't live externally. You live internally. Mm. Where you do stuff is out in the world, your external physical three-dimensional reality. That's where we do things, have experiences, mm. have conversations, set up businesses, write books, do podcasts, sitting across the table. This is part of what we do in our life experience. But And as you and I said before, we were talking about subjective reality is two people in the one room in the same moment in time in Hampton having a conversation, uh, both having a unique experience. Because your experience is not created by where we are or what we're doing. Totally. Your, your experience is created by how you process it, it. And that's about your experience, your history, your mind, your data processing centre that we call the brain. And so that is, and this is uh, opening the door a little bit, can I be really deep? Yeah. On consciousness and self-awareness, starting to be the recogniser of how my mind works and realising that this isn't real, this is just my mind's version of real. Mm. Right. And so, and we all, and it's not about being weird and deep and fluffy. It's about understanding that my reality and my experience, as it is for me, is a byproduct of the story that I'm telling myself. Because when I say, and this is how powerful my mind is, when I, for example, say, oh, my God, I'm I'm in a situation with uh, Lola, I'm doing a podcast and this is fucking terrifying and I'm doing bad and she doesn't like me and I'm, I'm, I'm going no. If this is my story, then all of a sudden my emotional system, so that's a psychology, my emotional system kicks in and all of a sudden there's fear and more fear, then my physiology kicks in. Now my sympathetic nervous system switches on. Mm. Now my heart rate increases, my blood uh, pressure increases, my respiration increases. Now my endocrine system kicks in. I'm producing adrenaline, cortisol, norepinephrine. All of these are physiological responses to a thought and the thought is I'm fucking up or I'm doing bad. Mm. So there's this there's this sequence of events and then I find myself in a self-created stress state. Mm. 
because mm. it's not about Lola because Lola's great. It's not about where we are. It's not about what's going on because there is everything's fine. Mm. But when I'm telling myself stories of doom and gloom, and I know I've waffled on from your original question, nice. but this is, you know, when I re- recently I went over because I live on a very busy street and there are cafes everywhere and, and uh, I was talking to the young girl who's lovely but she was making my coffee and said, how's your day going? And she goes, oh, and she started to complain like full yeah. on. And she's normally, but she just complained. She goes, ah, and she's telling me about this problem and it really wasn't a problem. I said, it's not really a problem though, is it? She goes, what do you mean? I go, you know what a problem is? She goes, what? I go, cancer. You know what a problem is? I go domestic violence. That's a problem, mm. and we and she goes, oh fuck, and I and it's not about discounting what she's saying, but when you take something that's a one out of ten and you mm. tell yourself it's a nine, mm. then that becomes your experience. I can definitely do that. Dramatize. Well, we all we're all overthinkers to a point. Totally. So the two reasons we stop, primarily three reasons. I'll give you one is it's hard, it's uncomfortable, yeah. right? The next is we lose motivation. We'll talk about motivation if you want, mm. what that is and what role it plays in actually changing and mm-hmm. succeeding. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is that we are programmed to not do it. So your mind operates, you know, conscious, subconscious, unconscious. So conscious is right now I'm looking at you, I'm paying attention to your physiology, I mean we're having a conversation, we're very in the moment in this conscious process. Mm-hmm. But the subconscious is that you're aware that we've pro- probably been going for 10 minutes, you're aware of how warm or cold it is in the room, you're aware that the window's to your right, you're aware of all of these things that you're not consciously focused on, mm-hmm. that's just your subconscious mm-hmm. awareness. And so the challenge for us is often the things that we need to do to succeed, lose weight, get in shape, become a successful uh, media person like yourself or author or any of the great things that you've done, quite often the things that we need to do are not the things we want to do. Mm. And so that is the challenge. I, we want the end result. We want the, we want the destination without the journey. Mm, totally. And the, but the beauty of the journey is that is where you become the person you need to become to do the shit you want to do. Is that where it would be a smart time to ask about motivation? Like when does the – because mm. I think that motivation does – I mean that wasn't – the question I wanted to ask was and that maybe the two are intertwined was like when then is the turning point where you go from the person that never gets the results, never gets the results, it's the same story over and over to – fuck it, I'm going to get the results this time. This mm. is the time where I fall mm. down seven, stand up eight. Yeah, Is that, that when motivation kicks in or That's changes? That's a great question. So I'm going to say to you, um, okay, I'll answer that. I think that most people have the ability to do pretty fucking amazing stuff and I'm not saying that insincerely. Most people, nearly everyone. Mm. I think also most people don't use most of their potential. Totally, I would agree with you, yes. Um, And so the question I ask people is not how motivated can you be but how productive can you be when you're not motivated because that is what matters. Mm. Because the idea of being motivated all the time is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. My whole PhD is around how do we succeed without being motivated because that is the key because – I mean, motivation in a an academic sense can be um, interchangeable or analogous to the word reason. So her reason for getting out of bed was to uh, get the kids up to mm-hmm. get them ready or to put on a suit and go to work and make a million bucks or that could also be her motivation for getting out mm-hmm. of bed, whatever. So it's interchangeable. But in the general kind of community, when we talk about motivation, we talk about how we feel. Oh, I'm motivated. I went and saw Lola talk, I'm fucking pumped, I'm excited, I'm in the zone, I'm I'm motivated. It's an emotional state. The problem with that kind of motivation is that it isn't permanent. It comes mm, and goes. Totally. And for most people or for many people anyway, as we spoke about with the gym membership and the um, participation, is that once they are not motivated, they stop doing what works. So the challenge is not how do I stay motivated because you won't because mm-hmm. that's a human experience. The challenge is... How do I stay productive and proactive and effective when I can't be fucked? Because mm. that's a very smart question for humans because we all are regularly in that space, mm. right? Um, and, and so part of that is you think about this. So 
I'm sponsored by a company called Maxis, and they know that I talk about this quite freely. Um, and they, you know, they uh, run, as do many other organisations, like uh, uh, body transformation programs, which Correct. they know I'm not a massive fan of. Mm-hmm. Right? They know that because I'm authentic. But I, but I will also say they can be good if we use them the right way. But here's the problem. For a lot of people, they go on, whosoever it is, six, eight, 10, 12 week, four week, whatever, body transformation, da, da, da. So let's let's just say 10 weeks. So 70 days, this person's in the zone. They're taking photos. Here's my pre-photos. Here's my one week photos. Here's my two week photos. And by the way, before the first week photo, I was hairy and I was standing in the shade and I drank four litres of water and I was sticking my guts out and here I am weak and all that kind of stuff. And so what a lot of people do on those programs is they lose weight, they get leaner, they change their behaviour, they change their exercise, they change their diet, they're changing all of these things. But what they're not changing is their subconscious programming. Totally. And your subconscious programming is you on autopilot. Because while they are consciously doing things differently, they are subconsciously waiting for the days to be done so they can go back to normal, which Mm. is why it's a 70-day program and not a life program. Mm. Right? Yeah. So this is the challenge is so with all of these programs, my um, proviso is for people, yeah, do it but use it as a platform. Use it as a beginning, mm-hmm. not a start and finish. I always say as well like health or dieting shouldn't be a detox. It should be a lifestyle. Correct. But I'm still the girl that's like, I'm going to do a 21-day detox. and mm. As long as that, as long as then at the end on day 22 you're not eating your own body weight in fucking Tim Tams. Because yeah, then why? Totally. Like, What's the point? It's I. I have. I would know. I don't know more than a hundred people who have done these programs personally, who then go out and celebrate, and eat ten thousand calories of shit and get drunk. Yeah. To yeah. celebrate getting through this thing, like the whole time, and within. I would say that people who change their body quite a bit, again, this is just bro science, I'm guessing, but I've been in this space for a very long time. I would say 90% of the people who change their body, lose weight, get leaner, change their body composition, um, I would say 90% of them start to regain that in the first week. Oh, wow. Yep. Yeah. In the first week. And the because they simply stopped doing what worked. Yeah. Think about this. Yeah. I'm doing this thing, my body's better, I'm, my food's better, my movement's better, my sleep, my lo- everything's better. Fuck, I can't wait till I stop. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So is the 10%er then that succeed and hulk and stay on track, are they then looking at it as a lifestyle, not a diet? Yes, a lot of them are, but even then some will drop off. Well, I, this is what I believe we need to do is we need to change our subconscious operating system. Mm -hmm. So people say to me, so I'm 50, I just turned 56. I was the fattest kid in my school when I was 14. My name at school was Jumbo. Everyone, teachers, parents, kids called me Jumbo. Mm -hmm. So I was heavier when I was 14 than I am now. Wow. And so I've been training for 42 years and I would train 360 days of the year. I would have five days off for incidental things. Like last week I had to go to Perth and do a gig Mm-hmm. to Perth and back in the same day. So I just physically. Oh, that's the word. I've it's done a killer. that. It's a killer. Oh. But I just physically couldn't get to a gym and I go, cool, so I won't train. It's not life or death. But 360 days of the year I would train, not because I'm manic, not because I'm, but just because I work better when I work out. Totally. My body, my brain, totally. uh, my emotions, I'm a nicer human to be around. So I, and I'm often talking to corporates and invariably uh, some dude my age-ish will come up and go, oh, fuck, what do you eat? What do you, how do you, how do you stay motivated? And I say, I don't stay motivated. And they're like, but you said you train 360 days a year. I, I said, yeah, I do. And they go, well, how can you do that if you're not motivated? I go, because it's hardwired. It's, it's part of my, it's my normal operating system. And the thing is when you've built some, um, habitual behaviour like cleaning your teeth, when that's hardwired into your subconscious, you don't need to get up and say, will I or won't I? You don't need inspiration, motivation. You don't even need discipline or self-control because it's who you are. This is what you do. So I need zero. It's like I've never had alcohol. I've never been drunk, Mm -hmm. right? I've never had a cigarette, never done a recreational drug. That's pretty amazing. Never, never. In your life, ever. Never had a beer. I've never been drunk. Is there a reason why? Don't want to. 
For, you knew that at a young yeah, age. Yeah, don't want to. Not What interested. about like when there were parties when you were Never 18? drank. Never had a glass of alcohol in my life. Wow. Never. And I'm not saying I know great. I, I was very, at a young age, I was an athlete. I was training like a maniac. And it just, I, I was always quite um, philosophical and and quite, you know, like I watched my mates from 16 getting pissed and falling down and just I thought they were just morons. So wh- how did you go from uh, quote unquote like the fat kid fat at 14 kid. Yeah. to then an athlete at six? Okay, I wasn't a good athlete, but I lived and trained like an athlete. So I lost 30 kilos in about, um, so I just started running. I had an experience. So I believe, remember we said a minute ago about potential. I believe that quite often um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a really good book called The Tipping Point. And I thought we might have had, yes, we do have it next to us. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I believe that we all have, in terms of um, really changing our life, our thinking, our habits, our results, who we are. I believe that a lot of time that is um, a lot of times that is preceded by an emotional tipping point. Mm-hmm. So for me, my emotional tipping point was year eight swimming sports, fattest kid in the school, um, being literally manhandled up to the starting blocks where I was trying to avoid it. I went and hid in the change rooms. My teacher f- physically dragged me out by the arm and I didn't want to swim because I didn't want to take my T-shirt off in front of hundreds of people because I was so fat. I was humiliated, embarrassed, nobody's fault, not blaming the teacher, not blaming anyone. I made myself fat because I ate fucking everything that wasn't nailed down. Mm-hmm. Um, ergo the name Jumbo. And but I, So I stood up there and it felt like four days before that gun went off and then I dived into the pool and swam to the other end and blah, blah, blah. And and that experience for me was um, uh, painful and transformative in that I never, ever wanted – because I, when you're a fat kid, well, me anyway, I never got changed in front of anyone. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever saw me without clothes on, including my parents, right? And was so that, Was I, that shame? Oh, of course. Mm. Humiliation, shame, embarrassment – uh, I, I, you know, I felt, yeah, I had the worst self-esteem in the world. Um, I thought it was unlovable. I thought all of these things, mm-hmm. and that's cool. A lot of people feel that. Um, but then, but what happened was in that moment, something in me went, nah, we're never doing this again. Mm. This is never happening again. And I went home. I'd never trained in my life. I put on sneakers and I lived literally across the road, 50 metres from a soccer oval, and I went over there and I just went around and around and around that oval, mostly walking, jogging as far as I could, which was not very far. And that was my first day ever of working out. And that day, from that day, I probably ran. My obsession started with running but I probably ran every day until I was about 18. Wow. Every day, 365 days of the year. And I lost 30 kilos in maybe 15 or 12, I can't remember, but a short period of time, weeks, yeah. Did your confidence change dramatically? 100%. And and this is one of the, this sounds weird, this is a weird expression, but one of the dangers of getting in shape when you're a kid is that you get all of this positive reinforcement mm. that you didn't get when you're a fat kid. And like, yeah. oh, you look amazing, well done. Well, we're not going to pick you last for the team. We're going to pick you third. Mm. So not 30th, third. And you're now, you know, you're, I'm not socially invisible anymore. I'm like I've got a girlfriend, I'm 15 and this is incredible and so I'm doing a million push-ups, a million sit-ups, chin-ups and running like a crazy person every day. And, and so the lesson I learned was, well, wow, when I'm lean and strong and fit, this is how I'm treated. When I'm the other way, that's how I'm treated. And so all of this, understandably, this um, this thinking around who you are and what makes you lovable becomes attached to your body. Holy so I had, I was, you know, we think that only girls have body dysmorphia and eating disorders. I was the worst. I was absolutely manic about food, about uh calories back then because we weren't so educated. Um, I went, whatever I normally ate before that day, I pretty much reduced that by 70%. I would eat, I would eat maybe a third. Oh, wow. And I would run all the time. So in, you go. Yeah, just became obsessed. In the lead up and you, only if you're comfortable saying this, 
was there anything that happened, I'm guessing personally, that led you to want to eat more food than no, you required? No, I was required? just a fat little fucker who loved food growing up in the country, just a little jumbo, just chowing down, chocolate cake and genetics. I have an endomorphic body type, which means I walk past a donut, my ass blows out. Yeah, I know and, that feeling. And, and uh, <laughs> but, 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 you know, for me this is all – and I was – you know, because I, I was inherently, um, you know, dysfunctional, uh, that's part of what gives me a bit of credibility now is that, uh, you know, so when I talk about eating issues and body dysmorphia and self-loathing and, you know, being socially invisible and and looking for approval and that was me. This, is, this isn't research I've done. This was me. This was totally. my life. So I know what it's like to be... Um, embarrassed, humiliated, and and there's no self-pity in this because and this happens to a lot of people. But there's, you know, now all these years later, um, you, you kind of, apart from my technical and scientific knowledge, it helps me connect with people because I love people and I don't yeah. want people to feel that, but I want to go, I get it. I've been their empathy. I get it. I don't, yeah. It's not just a theory. I didn't read this somewhere. I know what you feel. Oh, totally, which makes you in naturopathy, we would say like the wounded healer, mm. the, the healer mm. that has been through mm. that wound yes. is quite powerful. Yeah. So you've described one tipping point or yeah. I have, I actually had my next question for you was like what was your turning point but after that, so obviously there was a turning point, swimming pool, about to jump in, yeah. 14 years old. Yeah. Then, you know, up until 14 to 18 was you trained like a quote unquote yeah. crazy person, yeah. trained quite a lot, got heart, got the girlfriend, all yeah. of that jazz. What about as an adult? Were, yeah. were there any of those moments where you were like, whoa, this is a turning point or a tipping yeah, point? Yeah, yeah. So I carried all that mania into my adult years. Of mm -hmm. course I did. And then I became an insecure bodybuilder because I was inherently insecure. Um, then I. Uh, were you doing that healthy? Can I ask? No. Can I ask how you were doing it? So I did, okay, so for the, for the most part I did it healthy and then I ruptured my pec in my early 20s, mm -hmm. which got misdiagnosed as a bad strain and it wasn't. It was actually torn 70% off the bone. Wow. Then um, Pain. To, I found out too late really to have surgery and then I, I actually got prescribed, um, what was it called, a decadurabalin, which is a steroid by oh, okay. a doctor. Mm-hmm. For the peck. For the peck, for the yeah. tear. So, I mean, anyway, so that was legit. Uh, but then there was probably a bit of not so legit for about a year after that. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, the funny thing was then, I mean, that was, uh, let's, I don't know what I was, let's say I was, that that would have been in the mid-80s. Mm -hmm. So I was a young, in my early, yeah. early mid-20s. I mean, it, it was like, it wasn't like it is now. In terms yeah. of there was no, it wasn't even banned. Yeah. It was just, oh, you get it from this bloke. Yeah, totally. It, it was like analogous to supplements. Mm -hmm. Anyway, a bit different now. We know better now. Um, but then, you know, and there was wrapped around that because this is a really interesting conversation too is, you know, well, who am I? I got my entire sense of self and self-worth and identity from my body largely. Mm -hmm. So love me, like me, accept me, let me belong, approve of me. And and because I didn't think I was good enough, I always had to be uh, the fittest, the strongest, the leanest, the best built to this, which I wasn't any of that, by the way. But that's that was the story. That was my story. Wow. Um, and I knew, I knew deep down that that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. But when you constantly get reinforced uh, approval from a certain thing, well, that, it becomes hard not to believe that that's how it is. Totally. Right? Um, and then I started working in the fitness industry and so I was in many ways, I was a hypocrite because I was teaching people things that I wasn't doing, you know. Uh, You're in also that. very young. I was, but I was emotionally and mentally not, I mean, I wasn't, you know, uh, unhinged, but I, I still had lots of my own shit. Mm -hmm. And I was a pretty good communicator and I was quite, um, I could articulate things and explain things and I wasn't bad at doing my job. But away from prying eyes, you know, uh, I still wasn't walking all of the talk. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and then there was just, a, yeah, it was a journey and it was a journey of me, 
you know, probably a story that might resonate with people is, so one day I was probably in my um, bodybuilding phase and I was quite, so I'm five, nine and a half and at the moment I'm 87, 88 kilos and I've got a bit of muscle um, but I'm not huge but I'm in goodish shape, right? He looks great. I'm in okay shape but, it, <laughs> but at this stage I was 105 kilos and leaner than I am now and I'm already lean, right? Oh, I was wow. I was lean and I was massive. So what was your body fat percentage? Low, five. Oh, wow. Five or six. And I remember... I was living with a mate of mine who thought I was a fuckwit, understandably, and uh, he was just not, he didn't, he was much cooler than me. He had his shit together way more than me. And I was just this, still this insecure fat kid living in this big stupid body. Mm-hmm. And um, literally we were going out on a Saturday night and I was getting ready, he was getting ready. I don't know where we were going, probably chasing girls or something. <laughs> and um, he's talking to me. And I'm talking to him from the bathroom while I'm shaving and he's shouting down the hallway. And I go, mate, I can't hear you. So he walks down, he keeps talking, he gets into the bathroom and I'm standing in the bathroom in front of the mirror shaving and I've got a pair of jeans on, boots on, jeans on and no shirt. And he looks at me and he goes, what the fuck are you doing? I go, what do you mean? What do you mean? Like I thought he meant what do you, what do you as in what activity, are you? you know, I'm shaving. What do you? And he goes, no, what are you doing? He goes, look at your body because he hadn't seen me with no shirt, right? And I go, what? He goes, you look stupid. You look stupid. And I go, he goes, how big do you want to be? How big do you want to be? How veiny do you want? And he basically, and I saw on his face and he wasn't trying to be mean. He was just shocked. Yeah. He's like, and it was almost like, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you that you have to do this? And I just had an epiphany. I had a moment because deep down I knew. And so that kind of, for me, I had a bit of a moment in time. That was another turning point. Yeah, that was me fearlessly failing and going, yeah, I I need to change. I need to change the way I think and I need to to find a way to get some self-esteem and sense of self from somewhere other than what the mirror tells me or what people tell me. Have you done, so whether it was that time or another time, have you done like mental health work on yourself? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I also went maybe like a lot of your listeners down the spiritual rabbit hole, Mm -hmm. which I won't bore everyone with, but everything from rafter, hanging, tambourine, banging, bloody evangelical Christianity to Buddhism. No ayahuasca. I've never done. Oh, yeah, you're not into. uh, No, no, nothing mind-altering. Yeah, of Um, course. But. Um, but a lot of my friends have done ayahuasca, uh, interestingly. But, yeah, I just I, – I kind of got to the point and this was where my fascination with human behaviour started really when I started to think, why, why am I like this? Why do I think like this? Mm-hmm. Because the way that I think isn't healthy. Mm-hmm. And that's that, you know, I remember years ago, must have been just after it came out, Eckhart Tolle wrote um, a bunch of good books but The Power of Now yeah, um, and A New Earth. But I remember somebody gave me The Power of Now and I remember reading it and getting, I don't know, not many pages in, 10 pages in mm. going, this is shit. Like okay. this is just fucking pseudo-spiritual fluff, yeah. right? And then five years later I picked it up and read it and went, he's a genius. Yeah. He's a genius because for whatever reason, I just wasn't there yet, you know. And, totally. uh, you know, so, and that's part of our own evolution too. And totally. Yeah. So, a part of your job is to empower and motivate people mm. or evoke mm. motivation within people, even though yeah. we've just kind of yeah. debunked motivation, but human behavior. So, is there any moment of that that involves getting out of your own way? Like, is there a moment where you need to like let you sh- face your shit, be aware of it, and kind of like get over yourself? Is, is I that think there's yes, definitely, of- and there's a big difference between self-loathing and self-awareness. Totally. Do you want to unpack that? So, self-loathing is I'm a dickhead, I'm a moron, no one loves me, I'm unlovable, I'm this, I'm that, and that comes from a place of fear and insecurity and mm-hmm. self-doubt and all of that. And we all have done that. I've done that. Self-awareness is mm, okay. So I fucked that up. What's the lesson? Yeah. Self-awareness is. Um, I think I'm talking too much at the moment. Self-awareness is, mm, how's this podcast going? And that's self-awareness. Yeah. Self-awareness is what's the Craig experience like for other people? Mm. I ask CEOs all the time, what do you think it's like being around you? 
And oh, they, wow. Yeah. I go, what do you think the you experience is like? And I say to them, and I mean this in a nice way because we're all the same, me included, I guarantee you what you think of you is not what others think of you. Now, that's nothing to worry about. That's something to consider. Totally. Because you are a communicator and a leader and a manager. Totally. Guy or girl, same thing. Even a mum or a teacher or a dad or a coach or a mentor, a role model. So, you know, I remember seeing 1995, I was, no, it was earlier than that, would have been early 90s. I did a gig with Steve Monaghetti, an AFL club doctor whose name escapes me, and myself at a men's uh, health thing, Camberwell Civic Hall, I think it was, Town Hall, 500 dudes, um, us blokes, and it was filmed. Mm. And I, um, I, I'd never seen me doing my thing. Yeah. And they sent me a VHS tape. <laughs> You're fucking, aging yourself now. hilarious, right? <laughs> and um, they sent me this tape. And um, I, I forgot it was there. And anyway, one night, uh, a couple of weeks later, my then girlfriend and I were sitting on the couch and she said, what's this? And I went, oh, that's that. And I went, and I thought I did a pretty good job. She's like, let's watch it. And I'm like, yeah, let's watch it because I was fucking terrific. <laughs> uh, put it in, couldn't have been more humiliated, hated the way I looked, hated so as we we're watching on the uh, the TV, so I had a big rear data projection TV, which was enormous, uh, with about eight pixels, the worst quality picture ever. But all I saw, and I'd never seen myself from the side, as I come onto the stage, I see my fucking nose come on, right? And that gets there three minutes before the rest of me. <laughs> and I'm just taking in the side view of me. And I, I'm like, what, what is going on with my head? And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, don't, what do you mean? Me, look at my nose. She's like, that's what your nose looks like. And then I start to talk and <laughs> and I sound terrible. I'm like, listen to my voice. And then, wow. and then the content is not great. I thought it was a seven or an eight. It was a three or a four. Oh, wow. And so. Are you being serious or are you being I'm, I'm being honest. I wow. was not very good. And then, and I can tell you this because your audience might appreciate it. <laughs> it's true. And then I'm about 10 minutes in. And Lola, I reach down and I just adjust my dick in front of everyone, in front of 500 people. Amazing. <laughs> and my girlfriend <laughs> looks at me and goes, what did you do? <laughs> I go, oh, and I fell off the couch. I'm like, turn it off. I couldn't watch. And it was, <laughs> and so for me, that was my first, oh, this is what I'm like to be around moment. Yeah. Oh, this is what watching and listening to me is like for other people. I went, fucking hell, I'm not funny. I've got a shit voice. I'm borderline ugly. I'm not interesting at all, right, because the self-loathing came out. Totally. But what it did was um, it, it really helped me become better at what I do. So there was that self-loathing moment and there, I was embarrassed and I hated it and I never watched beyond that, never put it back in. Uh, too insecure. But what it did was it gave me a really good idea of what it's like being around me. And, and that matters because we spend our life around people. Yeah. It matters what people think of you, not in an insecure, please love me, please mm, like totally. me way, but it matters that you understand because if, for example, your job is communication and connection, like right now, we're sharing thoughts and ideas and stories. Now, even if the data, the information, the stories, the strategies are technically relevant and important and valid, but the way that you and I share them is boring and dull and uninspirational and people are not, you know, connecting, mm-hmm. then we can't impact people the way we want to. Totally. So for me as an educator and a coach, I want to help people, but I can't help them if I can't relate to them. But so how did seeing that impact change? Like what did it do? Were you like, okay, I'm going to give less of a shit about the way I look because there are certain things that we can't yeah, change? Yeah, I can't change my nose but it just gave me an awareness. So, um, But <laughs> I probably could. But, <laughs> but what I did was I, I just I basically realised how unprofessional I was and how unprepared I was because uh, I was yeah. very freestyle. Yeah. And I just kind of winged it and I'm like, I can't do that. 
I can't because you know, yeah, I can just get up and be a bit funny because yeah. I'm a bit amusing and. Yeah, it didn't work. I love that you've touched on this idea of self-awareness because I've always seen myself differently to how I am. So the most common feedback I get when I'm on stage is, wow, you don't look the way you sound. Yes. Because obviously I've got, I've figured out I've got a very bogan, ochre, Australian accent and I went to a private girls' school in Turak. So the two mm. people were like, this doesn't, this doesn't match. Yeah. And I've always known that and been okay with that. But it mm. wasn't until I managed staff at that smoothie bar mm. that I walked in one day my manager says, you're a proper real mermaid. And I go, what? And I thought, oh, she means my mermaid hair because mm. I had really long mm. hair at the time. She goes, real mermaids, like in, in the storybooks and yes. in the fables, she's like, they are these things that seem beautiful and soft and mm. um." almost that there's like this enticing nature yeah. in them. And she goes, but they're fierce, they eat you. Like mermaids mm. back in the pirate day mm. were these beautiful things that float around the ocean, but then they'd literally devour you and eat you. Mm. And they'd reel you in with their song mm. and then they'd mm. consume you. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, what do you mean? And she's like, you're fierce. No one sees it until yeah. it, they need to. Yes. Or, you know, you're fighting for yes. something. Yes. And I didn't, I thought I never came, I sure, I imagine we've spent a few hours together now that you would say I'm reasonably fierce as a, mm. a, a trait of myself. I've probably, I've spent time, that's why I asked about like kind of like getting over yourself. Mm. I give less of a shit about that now. Mm. And I'm just like, well, I'd rather be harnessing truth. And I think there's a beauty in you freestyling because I know that's also mm. some of your style with what you do. But I think it's also this concept of going, wow, like, yeah, I am seen in these other ways. And you are a black, I know you grabbed your dick, but you are a, blo- <laughs> a blokey bloke. Yeah, like, I'm a blokey you are bloke. a blokey bloke. So yeah. that innately, mm. yes. and I'm not saying go on stage and do that again, mm. but what mm. I'm saying mm. is mm. like, own the dude that you are. Like yeah. I now own that, yeah, mm. I can mm. be this whimsical mermaid, but I can also when mm. I need to protect something mm. or when I'm very passionate about mm. something, be fierce. Yes. Another interesting thing about what you said, how the first thing you saw was your schnoz, yeah. your nose. Yeah. Uh, in acting school, one of the first lessons we did when we had to watch our scene back yeah. was the uh, acting teacher said, how do you feel seeing yourself? Are mm. you self-critical? And all the dudes in the room were like, no, nah, I'm fine. One guy's like, I film myself at the gym. I'm very comfortable seeing myself. Mm. And one girl said, oh, I wish I didn't wear that jumper because it didn't make me look slim. And I said, like, with wholeheartedly, honestly, I, w- I do not like the look of myself. I think I'm ugly. I think I'm fat. Like, I'm a pretty small human and I look after myself and mm. I look after the way I look, yet it was still showed me, and that was only about a month ago, mm. that I'm still severely insecure. Mm. But I'm also okay that to me this is where, and I'm rabbiting a bit, but that's where self-awareness is so powerful. Like I'm happy admitting to these listeners and to you and to mm. anyone I meet that I'm massively insecure and I have huge insecurities that may or may not leave me, yes. but it's not going to stop me. And this is where it comes back to your motivation. Yes. It's not going to stop me doing what I love. Yeah, I love that. And what I love about you is that <clears throat> what you have, which is insecurity, everyone has, but you just oh. acknowledge it. Ah, yes. Of course. Everyone, I have never met anyone who has no insecurity about something, right? Yeah. There are things where you are not insecure. There are aspects to who you are and what you do where you are very confident and you probably have next to no insecurity around that thing. But around other things or other components of your human experience, there is insecurity. Um, If I'm doing, I remember um, not last year, the year before, so I do over 100 corporate gigs a year plus I do all my own events. Mm -hmm. So I'm in front of audiences at least 150 times a year, maybe more. And I read. I, I read that on and the I, website. <laughs> I had to go. I had to go and do a gig uh, in uh, Lawn for the Royal Australian College of Surgeons. Wow! So I'm talking to 300 Smart. surgeons. Yeah. High like, IQ. I'm 100 percent the dumbest person in the room. <laughs> I just went in and went, ah, you know. And I said, I. This is what I said because there'd been all these academic lecturers before me or presenters, and they were very good. But I'm like, well, I can't compete with any of that. And I'm not I'm not here to talk about medicine or being a better doctor or surgeon. I'm here to talk about how you manage you. And so my first my first sentence was, is it possible to be a surgeon and a dickhead at the same time? 
right? And half laughed and half were like, fuck, I'm not sure about this. And then we just opened that door and spoke about the way that we self-manage and the stories that we tell ourselves and, you know, like who you are is not what you do. You're a surgeon and you're all highly qualified and intelligent and, and that's awesome. But that's not who you are. That's yeah. your job. That's your career. That's your bank balance. That's your brand. That's your reputation. But none of that is you. Yeah. And so, we, you know, and they, it, it ended up going really well and I got really nice feedback, which was good. But I'm insecure um, a lot and it doesn't matter sometimes what your track record is or how many. It's like, you know, there's that thing you'll get 100 comments going, Lola, you're awesome, and you'll get one going, no, you're a mole. Right, and that's the one that you pay, yeah, or you, or Craig, you're a dickhead, or yeah. you're a fuckwit. I, I get all of that, and you know, one of my lecturers said to me at university years ago, if you, if, if you want to keep everyone happy, say nothing, do nothing, be nothing, and stand for nothing. Yeah, and it's like it's so true, and and all you can do. So this is, and we spoke about this on my podcast, but. All I do is I go, okay, what are my non-negotiables? In mm-hmm. terms of what I want to do, be create yeah. my values. What are my values? What's my purpose? What are my beliefs? What's my truth? Okay, based on that, what's non-negotiable for me? Mm. And I know that all I can do is try to live in alignment and I will fuck up and some people will support me and some people won't and some people will stick around and some people won't uh, and and – that is the human experience. So all I can do is control me. I can't, it's not in my interest to waste energy on things I can't control, which is other people's reactions, which is other people's decisions or behaviours around me. And it's very easy to get caught up in that. Definitely. Big time. I can't believe how frigging fast this has gone. How long have we gone? We've nearly hit an hour, dude. You talk, dude. So I know. So and I know you've already hit hit this definitely many a times in sure. many different ways in this hour, but for people listening, what is like one just like change or take mm. home <clears throat> if they're like, oh, my goodness, okay, I do want to make my list of non-negotiables or sure. I do want to get to the gym and not yeah. give up at the 21-day sure. mark. Like what is the one, is it a self-worth thing or what's mm. the one? Mm-mm. Everything comes at a cost. And you just, you just need, we need to be prepared to pay that price. So whether or not it's a pair of shoes or a PhD, I'm just back at uni in my mid-50s, there's a big cost. I'm studying full time. It's not convenient. It's not fun. It's not painless. It's not quick. It's not familiar. It's not easy. That, you know, but but I weighed it all up and went, okay, so these are all the things. Are you in, Craig? I go, okay. And it's all right. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the challenge for us is to recognise where we are, where we want to be, mm. either literally, financially, professionally, personally, physiologically, sociologically, relationships, whatever. Where do you want to be? Cool. Next, then what's the price? What do you need to do to get there? Mm. And then three, will you do it? Because otherwise the rest is just fucking dialogue and theory. How do you get that will you do it though? How do you get that point of like going because I have I know many uh, influencers that have got like they talk to having manifesto books and dream journals mm. and mm. and I think it's much more than putting your goal under your mm. pillow slip. You, you need to take away the safety net and the get out of jail uh, yes. card and you need to stop bullshitting yourself. And I'm not all about, ah, oh, fucking hardcore, but you need to stop fucking around, like truthfully. Like we can all find a reason to not do stuff, but this is what I would say to anyone listening. In a minute you are going to be five years older. In a minute. You're going to wake up, you're going to be five years older and your life is going to be either completely fucking different or exactly the same or somewhere in between and that is all about you. So you can rationalise, justify, explain, excuse, you know, you can do whatever you want, but ultimately the person driving your life, writing your story, painting your picture is you and you need to step up, own up, look up because life is unfair. People are pricks sometimes, not all people, some are beautiful, but some are pricks. Some people want you to fail. Life is messy. It is awkward. It is painful. And in the middle of of all of that is you the decision maker, the action taker and the reality creator. 
Oh, my goodness, I love that. Did you see the, the whole time, you can't say because you're listening to this, but the whole time that Craig was talking, I just had this ginormous smile because you cut, you, 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 you literally slayed the bullshit mm. just then. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure, You're wonderful. Treasure. I you do are my wonderful. best. I do my best. And you described me as real, but I believe that you're the real deal. And I believe that you share what is innately within you. And mm. I think that we're all so lucky that mm. you do that. So thank you. Stop it. I'll cry. <laughs> thank you. See ya. Love your guts, Bye. everyone. <laughs> love your guts. I love that. That's your sign off, isn't it? Yeah, love your guts. Love your guts. Bye. That's a wrap on another episode of Fearlessly Failing. As always, thank you to our guests. And let's continue the conversation on Instagram. I'm at Yummo Lollaberry. This potty, my word for podcast, is available on all streaming platforms. I'd love it if you could subscribe, rate and comment. And of course, spread the love.